Greetings and welcome to This is Revolution. My name is Jean Vagelan, in for Jason Miles today uh, for this pre-record episode, which we are recording on Friday, the 7th of April. So you will be listening to us. We are talking to you from the past and you'll be listening to us from the future. Um, before we begin the show, I would like to remind people to like and subscribe. And if you uh, feel so inclined, support uh, TIR on Patreon and leave a comment. At the very least, we do like reading all the comments. Jason especially likes arguing with the people in the comments uh, in his head, but that's because he's in his 40s and he doesn't, you know, he, he's still very much into the if you're going to say it on the internet, come and say it to my face. Anyway, uh, today we will be talking to uh, Matt Crispin of Chapo Trap House about his latest uh, series, which he's been doing, uh, which is called Hell on Earth and is really what I would describe as a fun introduction to world history, very detailed, very in-depth, a lot of arguments in there, but enjoyable to listen to, something I would definitely recommend uh, people have, uh, you know, have on their radar. And with me to just, uh, talk about this topic is, of course, co-host for the day, Deep State Cuba. Deep State Cuba, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm uh, excited to talk about the 30 Years War. Um, it's one of the great ones because... The, As a poll, you got to watch a lot of Germans die. Yeah, I can. That's very. That's the long and the short of it, right? Yeah. The the only pity was that popcorn hadn't been introduced yet. Oh, there we go. Pure pure Polish uh, ethno racial hate. Isn't the original? Doesn't the original Polish national anthem actually have a line "We are not Germans" or something like that, or "We will not be Germanized"? The um, it may very well. The truth is that it's kind of a weak anthem. So I've never bothered. Um, it's weak and it's long. So I've never bothered. Um, a lot like Poland, Lithuanian Commonwealth, weak and long. <laughs> anyway, uh, without further ado, let's bring our guest on for today, Matt Crispin, to talk about the Thirty Years' War and other important events that helped frame the making of the modern world. Welcome. Thank Hi. you. Hi. Pleasure to have you here today. So, um, yeah, we wanted to discuss, uh, you know, your series. And I thought we might begin by what inspired you to make this se series? It was actually a suggestion by my uh, co-creator uh, of the show uh, and producer of Chapo Chapos, my podcast, uh, Chris Wade. We awesome collaborated on, uh, on a uh series a mini series uh for stitcher a year ago about the history of the u.s presidents and we were thinking of doing another series together because that one had, we felt like it had uh been successful and people seemed to like it so we wanted to do another one and he suggested the 30 years war because he felt like it was a subject that is this uh you know it's got a name it's got a it's it's got a a brand but what the hell is it who the hell knows what the hell that was there isn't really a popular history of it in any way so why, why don't we take a crack at it because we had both uh, re uh read the uh classic cv wedgwood book which is you know a great uh, uh literary history of it or written in a literary style rather 
that is very engaging and tells you there's something there, you know, if you went for it. Uh, so then we started doing it. But then as soon as I started looking into it more to start figuring out how we were going to play the show, I was just struck by uh, how you could tell the story of the 30 years war and also tell the greater story of Europe transitioning to capitalism and also uh, to sketch out the dimensions of the crisis that led to the 30 years war. You can really kind of see the historical pattern of like a mode of production in terminal crisis. Uh, that I think is something that people, contemporary audiences can relate to. And so I thought there was a lot there to uh, to tease out. And I, I think, and I'm, I'm happy with the result, I have to say. I think we finally, we were able to get to some stuff that I've wanted to talk about for a while. Kuba, you had some questions. So you want to follow up with that? Yes. Um, so you, in the series, you show how the 30 years war uh, was one of the major events that was driving the end of the feudal mode of production and the rise of this incipient capitalist form. Um, do you think that without the 30 years war or an event like that, you'd have the same transition or was it a forcing mechanism in uh, uh, the creation of uh, a new mode of production? That's a very good question. I don't, think you necessarily need the 30 years war as we got it you know this this dispute over the holy roman empire but i do think you would have to have some sort of major conflagration which i think was going to happen given the conditions of the early 17th century specifically feudalism and terminal crisis plus the advent of the climate catastrophe of the little ice age mm -hmm. that combination that confluence led these uh, riv contradiction riven systems of of rule to come into conflict with one another and by fighting build these new state capacities that are what really do birth capitalism capitalism ends up being a state project of states that were built in the process of fighting this war uh, and because the holy roman empire is the most feudal uh, of the feudal dynasties overruling western europe at that time it's the one that had the deepest political crisis that led to the greatest amount of bloodshed. And maybe picking up on that, um, when just to give people an overview, in the Thirty Years' War, uh, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Who is fighting who? It, to since every conflict needs to be compared to to World War II, um, which side was Nazi Germany? Which side was uh, the plucky Brits? Which side was Imperial Japan? Well, speaking this is speaking of uh, the C.V. Wedgwood's book. C.V. Wedgwood was a British historian, and she wrote that book, I believe, in the 30s. So, and she was British, and so the whole thing is very much uh, uh, written in that context of the the emerging cr uh, crisis around Germany. And there is a through line of the book that you know, if the other powers of Western Europe, specifically the British had stepped in and checked the Habsburgs earlier, you wouldn't have had a 30 years war. And it's their uh, fecklessness that leads to it. And you can see her, you know, reacting to the contemporary moment of, uh, of the Munich crisis and everything when she was mm. writing that book. Uh, and that's why like, you know, our understanding of every historical era is going to be fixed by uh, our historical era. Like this one, I look at the 30 years war, as I say, I see like climate, climate crisis and collapse right. of institutions from within. 
because I live at a, a different historical uh, juncture. So she would definitely say uh, the Habsburgs are the Nazis. Ferdinand the second, the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, fucking Hitler. Uh, I, if you're a historical materialist, if you, if you're someone, if you're dialectical, if you're like, we had to go through capitalism, capitalism had to be birthed to get socialism. So the, the progressive force then is the one driving towards capitalism. And that would make the good guys, uh, the Dutch. And Impossible. it would definitely make the, uh, all the Catholic forces, Spain specifically, the, uh, the bad guys, because they're holding back. They were clawing away. Now, if you're romantic, though, and you see the the social value in the sacred spaces of feudal Europe, and you look at the horror of their destruction by capitalism and our failure to build anything other than, that, you know, anything on top of them. Well, if you have that kind of romantic spirit, I think you probably have some sympathy for uh, uh, for the for the Habsburgs. Sp Philip II of Spain, who's like uh, a figure in the lead up is a very tragic figure because he's the guy who tried to actually be a catholic king in full uh and it just uh, made him the most miserable man in europe the, the obama he, no the obama of the uh, habsburg empire because you know he came to power and he just couldn't change the ship and his heart was sad so he had to go on and get a netflix deal but yeah so <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel about those monarchs in ancient age. But I think that's an important distinguish, uh, distinction, especially in the Anglo-Saxon uh, you know, Anglo world. The association between uh, Catholicism and political reaction is not, you know, is not accidental. This kind yeah. of stereotype that exists in Britain. I mean, in Britain, we have a day where we burn a Catholic <laughs> yep. and have fireworks. It's like... The best time to get a baked potato in public while you watch us burn. Baked potato is incidentally the just the term for the remains of an Irish that's been burned at the stake. <laughs> yeah, freshly fresh meat. Uh, you know we can't get we can't afford post Brexit we can't afford. Yeah, no potatoes. Yeah, can't afford any of that stuff. But in uh, it's been transferred into the United States. I mean, you know, anti-Catholicism has been a strong strain in American political politics. Uh, uh, the political tradition especially this view that catholicism which i think you you really uh, explain well catholicism as a supranational force that influences these states and creates quite secular reasons why you know there is a kind of hostility amongst the you know amongst the among certain elements of society who chafe under this uh uh so, supranational force, whether that's the opportunist uh, German princes, like the uh, uh, like the Elector of Saxony, mm -hmm. wh uh, uh, or whether that's the middle class in the town who are sick of being uh, beholden to a uh, you know a, 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 a an, an authority that. Although I was um, quite interested to find out that one of the early markets driving the adoption of the printing press was indulgences. Indeed, yeah. yeah. It was the only real reliable source of income for a printer. The book, every book you published was a huge gamble with no insurance backing it. If the audience, if you print 500 copies of a book and nobody wants to read it, you are out all the money and there's no way to recoup it. <clears throat> but uh, indulgences, an order from the government, hey, I need 500,000 indulgences to send to these rubes so that, that we can build a, cath a cathedral. 
that's a guaranteed income that you can keep a press going with. Oh, it's the And then all those presses immediately switched to printing Lutheran tracts as soon as it was clear that that was the best ticket in the market and the most guaranteed source of profit. Yeah, it's the shift from government contracts to uh, an influencer economy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have that. That was another fascinating dynamic that was uh, teased out because, you know, when you when you read about uh, the failure, for example, of the printing press in the Middle East, you have a lot of uh, cultural explanations that there was a hostility, which really, if you look at the reality, there was not that kind of hostility to printing. It just wasn't profitable. Exactly. Right? It just wasn't making money. There were uh, non-Islamic presses operating in the Ottoman Empire. It's just nobody had worked, really found a way to monetize it. But the, the, the great paradox that you show is that the Catholic Church's increasing commercialization, uh, you know, leads into this like Protestant Reformation, like uh, on a material basis, like a, a hand in a glove, like there's a kind of continuity uh, that exists that both, both sides in this conflict are in effect being fundamentally transformed by the economic system and context within the, uh, uh, you know, within which they're operating, and it's not simply a question of reactionary Catholics and progressive. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like the but the Catholic states by continuously competing with one another are creating these state structures that then are then pulled further, you know, by subsections within that have like a particular uh, economic base to work from, like the Dutch. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they start pushing away from it. And uh, then you see that movement move to Germany and you see the, the petty princes of the Holy Roman Empire trying to assert the same autonomy that the Dutch are trying to assert from the uh, Habsburgs in Spain and the Huguenots are trying to do from the French crown. And because the institutions uh, are so long enduring and have created uh, such deep wealth mm -hmm. uh, and therefore state capacity, but no administrative control. This continuation of feudal principalities with this putative overlord, the emperor, who is by this point no longer seen as a neutral arbiter of disputes among the princes, but a partisan of a war between the Catholic and Protestant forces in Europe. Uh, they see this as an opportunity to throw off uh, the, the shackles entirely and to become, yeah, like this new type of state. Uh, and the Catholics then have to battle with this Frankenstein that they created. So um, you mentioned the religious um, drive within the in the conflict, as well as the importance of the Holy Roman Empire as an institution. And also for our listeners, the map of Europe looked very different at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, the certain countries that we take for granted as being integral to European history hadn't even emerged or hadn't formed. Um, for instance, there was no unified Germany, no unified Italy, um, and the Dutch were still fighting their 80 years war to assert some kind of independence from the Habsburg crown. Uh, what it's difficult enough to understand the difference in material life between a period of history uh, like the 30 years war and what we are experiencing today. On the level of people's mentalities, uh, the way they viewed the world, how could you try to explain to a contemporary audience um, why religion, why things like um, who the Holy Roman Emperor were um, happened to be, why were these things so important 
that they could lead to such a bloody conflict. So the thing to remember about uh, these people that we're describing is that they believed in God uh, as a social <laughs> reality in a way that we do not. Like we right. still have these for religious forms that we have filled with social meaning, but that is a fundamentally different social meaning. Uh, the, 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 a, a percentage of belief that was part of uh, our understanding of the world around us has been privatized and internalized. Uh, and capitalism and Protestantism and capitalism help push us through that process and give birth to this new type of subjectivity that we inhabit. So the thing to remember is these people believed in God in a way that is really inaccessible, uh, uh, certainly for people trying to describe it in, you know, the secular public marketplace of ideas that we all inhabit now. Because of this, their cultural and social lives, well, which were as rich with symbol and uh, ritual and spectacle as ours, were entirely devoted to religious imagery and religious concepts. We think of all the things that everybody cares about so deeply now, politics, identities, uh, uh, nations, uh, uh, and, and what we want in our entertainment, you know, all of that was provided by religion at that time. Like the entire social life was based on religious observance, uh, uh, church festivals, uh, carnivals, uh, feast days. That is what defined social life. And so what uh, the Lutheran Reformation does is creates this printed culture that is able to abstract that relationship away from a physical culture of ritual reaffirmation in a community to an individual practice of, of a symbolic uh, representation where you're sitting with a book. Mm -hmm. And that is now replacing a public affirmation of religious belief and faith to a private one. Uh, and it's, yeah, so like, but that process, it's happening in different places at different times. And the conflict that emerges between the people who are moving towards that conception of, 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 of Christ and of, of the social and the people who are, have, are repelling away from it, that conflict generates the sides basically. Uh, and, but which one you choose is of course, based on, uh, the material conditions that are generating that culture. Uh, and you have commercial economies emerging in the city-states of, of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, in the Rhineland, and in the Low Countries especially, and in England, that, uh, that create a new subjectivity out of this ferment and struggle. It's, it really brings to mind uh, the example in Christopher Hill's Century of Revolution, where he compares the high church and the low church, uh, the high church and the nonconformist churches in England, and looks at the proportion of the church service which is given over to ritual versus the proportion that is given over to intellectual preaching and he like he outlines quite clearly that in the high church which was very catholicized it was mo it was the proportion was towards ritual whereas uh in you know in norfolk and the other centers of nonconformist religious observance uh intellectual preaching and discussion of the bible forms a far greater proportion of what takes place in the church and i think that fascinating transformation and what it is to you know because religion is a kind of misleading term and because as you said what we m might think of as re a religious way of looking at things in the world in 
the 15th century and the 16th century is fundamentally different to how somebody in the 21st century is approaching uh, uh, their religion. And that shift is taking place through the mode of Protestantism in a shift away from that communal ritual shared collective experience as being what religion is towards uh, a more intellectual uh, and as you say, abstract tradition. And I think that's a fascinating it, transformation. Ultimately paving the way for the Protestant ethic um, mm -hmm. in the um, Catholic and the Calvinist branch variant of uh, the Reformation. And uh, one thing that came out in your uh, uh, episode on daily life was that the, we think of religion as being something that is frankly kind of boring, deeply uncool. Boring. And that's, boring. that's so key. Yeah. And and the um, your guest had a great observation that well there was no line between religion and entertainment. The you wanted the Franciscans or you wanted some mendicant or maybe a, a Lutheran rabble rouser to come through your village because some of those guys were spitting fire, right? Like it was It was entertaining. That is such a huge difference. And it's something that makes religion, real religious life so hard for many people to fathom because they imagine it is to surrender some part of like their carnal self. Like I'm going to have to get less enjoyment out of life in, in, a, in a strict sense because it means spending less time doing things that are fun and spending more time doing things that are boring. But there, yes, religion was fun. You couldn't define fun outside of religious spectacle and, and uh, experience. Like that was the stuff that the candy in pop culture that like keeps us addicted, that was all religious. And it was mm -hmm. like your, your pursuit of enjoyment ratified your belief in God in a way that is now been uh, inverted. And, and those two things are now put at fatal conflict. The, and that's why um, and, nobody really believes in God anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, the perfect example of this transformation is that what does uh, Cromwell do in England? Yeah, no Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> no Christmas, guys. Stop having fun in your uh, religious festival. Get that figgy pudding out of here. You're enjoying what? yourself? You're How dare you? Yourself? How dare you? No, no. You? Joy is not to be enjoy, uh, 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 pursued. It's certainly not to be uh, uh, luxuriated in. No. Uh, it is to be self-denied. Does that mean we're all paupers? Certainly not. It means we're reinvesting. We're investing our profits. We're not spending them lavishly on our own enjoyment. This is the cycle of decadence that short-circuited feudalism and wouldn't allow it to address the changes in material conditions that happened with the Little Ice Age and, and the lo loss of arable lands over time. Like... Um, uh, and some... So, so, and And... As you say, I mean, the climate change aspect is so important because, you know, that climate change is the context yes. of, of the, I mean, this is exactly the same period as you see the degeneration of the Ottoman Empire and the yep. rise, uh, the rise of uh, um, provincial rebellions. It's you, the fall of the, the fall of the Ming dynasty happens during this exact same period. You have the this takeover. Exactly. You have this like crisis, uh, you know, this underlying ecological crisis that just accentuates uh, these transformations. I mean, religious transformation is so often linked with, uh, you know, with end of with the end of times kind of discourse. I mean, the rise of Shiism in Iran 
comes at a period when they've been invaded by the Mongols like several times. Of course, you're going to think like, yeah, God, yeah, we got to switch gods here. <laughs> we got to do stuff. And I, I want to pick up on that. Um, there's religion is the entertainment side, uh, which wasn't just the preaching, but pilgrimages and quite frankly, yeah. executions. They, they, oh, yeah, definitely. Executions, public public sadism, which we've always loved and always will. But yes, uh, pilgrimages, modern tourism is invented out of the process of people moving across, uh, uh, going across town, going across to the other uh, principality to see a, a, a saint's shin bone and to drop a, a, a copper in the in the coin in the bin. I'm gonna gonna touch the skull of Saint Lazarus and that's gonna cure my syphilis. Yeah. Uh, the but also uh, as Gene points out, there's the the kind of dark side, which is um, the apocalyptic. Um, the ap ap apocalyptic vision that can be applied to periods of crisis. And you mention uh, in the show uh, figures like John D. Um, and the combination of uh, astrological signs, right? Because the climate wasn't understood in uh, the terms of uh, carbon dioxide emissions or you know the chemical composition of the atmosphere, but through uh, things like astrology and theology, uh, between that and the level of brutality inside um, the war zones of the Thirty Years' War uh, leads to this apocalyptic feeling, like the, the end is really upon us. And maybe uh, you could touch on that connection between like the occult side of the religious culture, um, the level of violence and suffering that's taking place, and uh, the emergence, the the birth, the willingness to think of a, a new world or the end of the world. So, yeah, you have these cycles of apocalyptic fervor happening in Europe, uh, and it, it's a result of uh, uh, Christianity persisting in the social reality of feudalism, which is a fundamental social contradiction that over time, and certainly as uh, crises accumulate, becomes more and more acute within a society. Because you have this religion that is, says explicitly, we're all on the same team, we're all the same people, we, uh, we are radically connected to one another, uh, we should share all of the proceeds of life so that we can live, uh, you know, literally make heaven into earth, you know, like that's, that's the social vision of Christianity, but it's, but to the use of maintaining this uh, class society of uh, essentially formerly uh, pagan German warlords just hunching on top of the carcass, uh, the commercial carcass of the Roman Empire's trade and agricultural networks. Uh, and that, that, that circle can't be squared. The thing that squares it is the apocalypse, is the return of Christ. And so socially, there becomes this clamor over time for a return to Christ. There's a big cycle at the turn of the millennium, a thousand years after uh, Christ's birth, that leads to the Crusades, a, a, a discharging of that energy outside of the system rather than let it accumulate within. And you have another one emerging around 1500. And this one can't be uh, 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 exhausted out because they've lost, not only have they lost the Holy, Holy Land, but the, the uh, godless Mohammedan has now uh claiming european land in the form of the ottoman empire there is no right. release now that you have uh, the very beginnings of westward colonialism, uh, westward you know spanish imperialism but it's, it's it's barely even begun at that point so there has to be an internal uh transformation and it is this turn 
uh, uh, towards the apocalyptic. And you have guys like Luther trying to reason our way out of that problem. But then you have the social base of peasantry who are really, what they're trying to envision is the uh, Christian um, apocalypse as not as destruction, but as the fulfillment of a promise, which is communal communistic life. It's the, it's what gets secularized by socialism in the 19th century. Like it's that social vision. And, and, but you know, they're peasants. They don't have the ability to actually press for it effectively. There are peasant rebellions. There's one that is triggered basically by Luther that is put down brutally by the, by the princes of Germany. With Luther's uh, support. With Luther's wholehearted yeah. support. And you, yeah, you're the murdering, thieving hordes of peasants, he wrote. Yeah, they, some of the descriptions given to the peasants from Luther are quite bloodily described. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's this Luther, despite launching this revolution, is also in some ways a conservative figure. Uh, oh, yeah. He, He's trying to conserve that class society. He's just noticing that the church we use to secure it is no longer up to the job. We need a new reformed church that can do the job of re-buttressing the system. Uh, because he felt it was necessary for the savior of souls. But amongst the the, the people who weren't, as uh, Thomas Munster, one of the re rebel uh, priests of that era, he referred Luther to Luther as that easy living flesh at Wittenberg. And, you know, he's a, he's a, he was literally getting fat. At, he's, a, he's a thin, like, coal-eyed fanatic when he said worms talking to, uh, talking to uh, Charles V. But within 10 years, he is just... He is a big fat party animal. He's having a great time. He's but in the among, fat Elvis among, phase. Among the yes, among the, the, the yes, he did. But among the ravaged peasantry and hyper exploited and more exploited as the uh, the it, nobility tries to you know squeeze a little bit more out of them in these changing conditions and, and this move towards the cities, uh, they want they want a Christ that is truly uh, returned, and so they they sought it. The other side of that, though, is what you said, the occult. That is among the learned, the nerds, the indoor kids of this period, the people who uh, who are driven to sit down with books and learn what they mean and translate the symbols, th those kind of dorks. D&D uh, players. D &D for players. Real. And they, they don't want to sit around waiting for Christ to return. Our demographic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they don't want to sit around waiting for Christ to return. They want to act, move towards bringing him here, not by praying, but by doing something practical to to gain an understanding of the world around them that can allow them to move the wheel of history like boiling all that urine you boiling <laughs> urine to, to, if you can turn lead to gold you have power over the economy you have power mm -hmm. over the mode of production you have power to transform our social order uh and the, the vision that guys like john d and later the authors of the rosicrucian manifestos that helped lead to the, the conflict are driven by this a proto-scientific urge to uh, transform the physical world through application of reason. Uh, and of course, that took the form of trying to turn lead into gold and trying to talk to angels in a uh, compact mirror, uh, you know, uh, trying to divine uh, the, will, the name of God from the Kabbalah. Like, but that's what they had because right. there had not been that split between religious understanding of the world mystical understanding of the world and a empirical observation of that world 
I like the idea of John D scrying in that mirror and talking to angels and running into the same problems as uh, modern guys internet dating. It's like, yeah. what's my opening line? How do I get them interested? Do I nag them? Do I do I start with being like, oh, oh, you're only a, a cherubim? I I was hoping better. Like, you're like a six. Yeah. Well, he did have bad romantic luck with the cherubs because one of them told his scrying partner, Edward Kelly, that they had to swap wives. If he As wanted to does. keep talking to the, to, to the angel who had very important information. <laughs> you want to sell that? You want to get lead to gold? I can do it, but you got to swap wives with this guy. Yeah, and like, make that's sure the mirror is a good angle, right? That's, like, yeah. <laughs> that's literally what the former leader of the Mujahideen Khalki did. He was like, my deputy, I've received information that uh, your wife is the supreme woman, and as I am the supreme man, you, you must divorce it. your wife and marry me. Uh, and uh, so it was. And now she's in charge of the whole thing. But yeah, it's a, it, it is a, it, it's fascinating to see that kind of in the strange places that intellectual life ends up going. You know, you get these. I mean, like the tenor of the series is very much you're trying to as you said at the beginning, kind of show that this period has at least some echoes in today's politics. And all, all this, you know, all these kind of strange occult things remind one of like, you know, these conspiracy theories. QAnon. Among, you, yeah, well, not absolutely. just Q, not just QAnon being the biggest, but you have all those people who are like Iraqi Dina. Dina revalue. That is, yeah. that's an apocalyptic vision. Absolutely. Yeah. That is <laughs> a jubilee. What we're, what we're all seeking, what the medieval peasants were seeking, is it and what communism sought to bring about was a jubilee, the big rock candy mountain. And the thing is, peasants in a growing society with increased population, because you've solved some of the agricultural input questions, you can't make a big rock candy mountain because it's too much fucking work pulling all those Malthus. goddamn calories out of the fucking ground. You can't do it. You need technologies of labor saving and surplus extraction to distribute equally and minimize labor inputs and that is why the, the, uh, socialism took the cork went through the the carcass of the millenary christian vision of of uh jubilee that the medieval peasants believed in and was extinguished by the death of god and said okay fine we can't go to heaven but we can bring heaven to earth right picking up on that um we have the a branch of the reformed church going in this Calvinist direction, all about intellectualized uh, religiosity and the, the demonstration of virtue through productivity, hustle culture. Yeah. And then you've got um, this carcass of millenary Christianity giving rise to uh, socialism as a sort of secular reinterpretation and this incipient scientific worldview emerging out of you know, the occult, astrology, alchemy, all that piss boiling. And yes. th given that are is the association between these religious worldviews and the modern capitalist, socialist, scientific outcomes that um, underpin uh, our civilization, such as it is, um, are, is that a necessary relationship? Is there something fundamentally Christian or um, European about 
uh, the form of capitalism that we have now, the socialism as it, uh, as it exists as an ideology, um, or is it just because this material transformation happened in the context of uh, European Christian civilization? Um, and if it had happened somewhere else, um, we just, it would be dressed up differently uh, right. intellectually. Well, I, I kind of think that it could it, it could not have emerged first anywhere else. It would, no, nobody was beating uh, Europe to it because, in my view, because of Europe's specific geographic features. Uh, I believe that what, uni, what distinguishes Europe from the rest of Eurasia, the Eurasian civilizational belt that like emerges and is like the first concentrated, you know, agricultural societies uh, that's that you know, continue to, through cycles of empire or whatever, but, you know, maintain themselves. Uh, it is the part that is least dominatable and holdable from a single imperial center. Like you had the Ro the Roman Empire emerge because Rome is able to do these uh, very early adaptations to, you know. Uh, and uh, Rome is military. limited to the southern and Mediterranean. Exactly. And really only stuck to the southern part and what collapsed. And it was never able to be redominated from a center. And that meant you have these medium-sized states in this constant competitive situation with one another, rather than ever being dominated and held to some level of peace between one another. And what that means is that, well, the instruments that will make up capitalism, the actual material relationships uh, sustained by technology, different types of technology are emerging everywhere and have existed for a long time. Like you know, double entry bookkeeping is, you know, ancient. And, and uh, the many of the fundamental technologies of the Renaissance are originally right. Chinese. Exactly. But an imperial polity has a vested interest in preventing the sort of disruptive, mm -hmm. violent undermining of the social fabric that goes with Schumpeter's creative destruction. Exactly. Create a central authority with a bigger fish to fry, like not getting dominated by the fucking steppe peoples. It's not fucking going to let that fly. Peoples. China, China uh, does away with feudalism. I'm looking at you, Kurd. China does away with feudalism in the in before Christ. That's how long it's been since they have had feudalism in Japan or and China rather. Uh, it it, uh, it cannot be that kind of inefficiency uh, in. Uh, can't be sustained and neither can the destabilizing factor of capitalism so you have in europe these states bumping into each other and so when you get the right demographic uh spillover point and technological spillover point that emerges basically everywhere in this strip of land and around the 15 1600s only europe do you have the uh government governmental structures capable of directing that process instead of just letting it pop off and you know accumulate wealth in you know specific places city states or whatever as opposed to being you know connected to a greater uh dynastic civic national project and then you have the capacity to turn capitalism into this social form that can reproduce itself outside of uh you know the containment of a geographic area uh so that's why I think capitalism emerges in Europe. And so it has nothing really to do with Christianity. But because it is Europe and Europe is Christian, it means that as capitalism conquers the globe, it does so through a lens of European Christian civilization. Right. So I think it is marked fundamentally by those mindsets. And yes, the, the uh, Calvinist, specifically Calvinist conception of value and debt uh, and saved and, uh, and, and damned 
is a is a key overriding like uh, psychological feature of capitalism and that is specifically due to its european christian origins i want to pivot a little to the war part of the 30 years war um we when you mention the um technologies of governance that come out of europe and that then get exported um globally through uh, colonialism and imperialism um the forms of early capitalism uh, one to what extent or uh, how did the need to fight war to mobilize resources to to pay for mercenaries uh, get us to um those technologies of administration um and two what was it like to actually what was the war experience for soldiers for civilians caught in it um not just the decision makers and the the generals right well i'd say that the main contribution that the that the war, waging of war in this period has to creating institutions of capitalism is that the main goal the main problem a state has waging a war is not a question of strategy or tactics in the battlefield it is a financial question it is how do we pay to pay to arm and keep these armies and so that makes the state focused on revenue and willing to innovate to extract revenue in a motivated framework that wouldn't necessarily exist absent war. And so these state capacities emerge out of the need for funds. Taxation regimes are modernized and streamlined. Uh, credit instruments uh, are uh, created. Uh, the, the Dutch commercial economy that emerges, emerges in the crucible of war. It is because the Dutch are fighting for their independence to get the Spanish and they have to do what they can to take this tiny little country with uh, hugely uh, small resources relative to the mother country of Spain uh, and, and fight on something like an equal footing. And that that means things like the joint stock company, you know, mm -hmm. uh, things that can uh, invest capital at, and, and, and focus it in an efficient way that the, a behemoth, a feudal behemoth like the, the, the uh, Spanish Habsburg Empire would never be able to do. So that's and, that's how uh, uh, the fighting of war, more than anything, builds these institutions. But the armies that fight are because we are in this zone after the fall of the feudal military order, but before the emergence of what a capitalist one would be. The, the knights on horseback, the the, the uh, feudal uh, hor uh, horse lords that define like high uh, medieval warfare, where you had local. Uh, armored knights who had the money and resources to have a big horse a desert tier and a fucking uh a, uh a suit of armor would be called on to fight and bring levies from the lands of, under their control in exchange for that's the that's the feudal relationship but by this time by the 15 1600s the introduction of gunpowder warfare uh thanks to just more money being spent on this stuff like there's money to be made if you kill, build something that the king can use to kill his opponents better so you get these gunfire weapons or uh, gunpowder weapons that level the playing field and, and some a kid off of the plow can be shot, can be taught to kill a knight wearing a, like a, a dynasty's worth of armor off of his horse, uh, you know, for two shillings. And so uh, what filled the gap after the end, the, the failure, at the end of these, the feudal levy, the feudal structures is mercenaries, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, military entrepreneurs, 
contractors, they were called in the, during the Italian wars, or condottieri, condottieri, condottieri uh, would front the money to buy the materials and weapons to sign up uh, volunteers paying, being, uh, in exchange for wages to join their force. They yeah. would like set up, set up their, uh, their flag and their shield in front of a tavern and just wait for local guys with nothing better to do to come in and say, hey, they'll pay you to go fight in this guy's war. And they come and do it. And then they go, they go out into the field. But during the Thirty Years' War, the process of paying uh, armies in the field, paying it was still very rudimentary because the systems were just being built. They weren't yet perfected. No cash app. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's absolutely critical. I think, you know, amongst historians, obviously, I think there is a, like a great awareness, of course, of how important economic and social and logistical structures are in winning wars. Although in the popular, you know, if you watch the History Channel, it's just like, you know, super generals off the SAS or like that kind of stuff. Or even they have that TV show where they have like, who would win a Viet Cong deadliest warriors. Yeah. Well, deadliest warriors. Yeah. <laughs> a samurai or a musketeer. And it's like, these are the things, but that's how people view like success in warfare when it comes down to planning. Again, when you talk about this, this makes me think of like why the Ottoman empire was initially successful and why it ended up uh, on the back foot. Initially uh, there was no major difference in technology or even manpower to the same degree between the Ottomans and the uh, Hungarians, for example. But as a feudal state, the Hungarian army, uh, king could never count on the amount of troops yeah. that he could take to the field campaign season after campaign season, whereas the more centralized feudal system of the Ottoman Empire and, and the larger standing army of Kapikulu and uh, Yenicheri, you know, that meant that every year the Sultan would know he had X amount of soldiers in the field, uh, where, so one year the Hungarians might have more, but the next year nobody turns up because they had a bad time in the previous season. So it's these technologies that uh, it's not just financial instruments, but the break, the the breakdown and uh, failure of the old feudal war system in the context of the war with the Turk, in the context of you know things like Agincourt, where like the bowmen yep, took out the, the Welsh bowmen just, just, just mowing down the cream of French chivalry. <laughs> Oh, and to, to pick up a little on the connection between gunpowder and the, the end of feudal warfare, um, it, in the 16th century, the best firearms in the world were actually manufactured in Japan. They had been introduced by the Portuguese during uh, Japanese warring states period, and um, rifles had been um, advanced considerably due to um, the imperative of uh, innovation in war fighting between these uh, daimyo states. But as soon as the country is unified, the um, Tokugawa emperors collect all the firearms that have been produced yeah. precisely <laughs> because... <laughs> no yeah, and by the time Matthew Perry shows up, um, advanced gunpowder weapons are seen as like a, a breakthrough innovation. Like, why don't we have these in Japan? And it's like, yeah. we did. But yeah, we had the, an emperor who knew that's not good. That's not good for anybody. Yeah, well, it's not good for the samurai, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, so, but the, the experience of fighting the war uh, was really the, it's not, you shouldn't, it's not really uh, generally defined by battles. Mm -hmm. There are a few big battles, uh, consequential battles during the Thirty Years' War, but combat, getting together in the, in, and putting your armies against one another, uh, was not the main feature of 
uh, either military life or military strategy. Uh, it, it was built around the experience of occupying towns and villages uh, and also occupying siege lines or the walls of a besieged city. Uh, that, was, that was the experience uh, for most of the war because sieges of these fortified positions become the main uh, strategic goals. Uh, and it's, it, and these mercenary armies didn't really have an incentive to see their armies come to battle because right. that cost them money. That, that was an investment. And if it got dinged up, then they were on the hook for it. So there was an, an incentive to not have these guys fight if they don't have to. And, and so it was mostly sieges and uh, occupation. So, you know, very monotonous. Uh, but life in the military camp was like a moving music festival. It was not just soldiers. It was their entire families, wives and children. It was a huge coattail of different uh, suppliers because there was no central military infrastructure to distribute supplies. So what you might get some money and then you would use that to buy ammo, to buy armor, to, to uh, get your horses, uh, uh, you know, kit and the tack inspected. Like so, hostlers and doctors and and dentists and and uh, sex workers are all just in this huge train that would then you know take the camp into an area and then consume all of the resources like locusts and and the and despoil the countryside and living leave off the local the peasantry starving. There's there's a reason that they stuck that bit in the American Constitution saying you can't billet the soldiers. Indeed. <laughs> they were like, that was yep. a big deal. <laughs> it's like, bro, we're not having people in our house. Not in yeah. the guest bedroom again, please. For good. Oh, the guest bedroom? They're kicking you out of your bedroom. Yeah, that's true. And the... they're taking your favorite goat. Yeah, we there's a, a bit of testimony that we read in the show from some poor Saxon uh, burger who had to have a uh, a regimental judge and like his entire uh, uh, entourage, which of course, you know, three women and a servant boy and, and uh, his mistress and his wife and all this. And he, he, he complains in his diary that he, they uh, made him, they took a, a brooch that his wife had, like just, they lived in his, his apartment, they kicked him out of his bed. They just took jewelry from his wife. And then when uh, the judge's wife had a kid, they made the family pay for the christening nice just like hum humiliating a real alpha move yeah uh, the and i wanted to get back a, a little to the condottieri because um, as you point out the these aren't national armies it's not world war ii you're not squaring off in stalingrad um between two uniformed um forces under what we think of today as military discipline mm -hmm. but instead military entrepreneurs so are these is wallenstein like um eric prince or dmitry utkin right are these like the wagner group or um blackwater i mean i i that feels like an insult to wallenstein really because wallenstein is a, a genuinely like a genius of this era because he combines a lot of the uh skills that you see of the moment like he, he is uh able to grasp how things are changing uh and he uh basically applied the protestant rational world to the catholic habsburg state like he tried to you know uh import those those processes like he mastered the uh the financing of the war 
he was able to take uh, um, he was able to take uh, devalued coinage and buy uh, expropriated Bohemian lands for pennies on the dollar, and then use those as equity to put in armies in the field that the Holy Roman Empire depended on. So that by the end of the war, he was the Duke of Friedland and one of the biggest landowners uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and at the same time, he was doing logistical uh, genius in, in waging war uh, with the Protestants, as opposed to these guys like Eric Prince, you know, just rich dickheads who are like, hey, you know, we have this, the, we have this behemoth military with this neoliberal state administering it. That means there's lots of points for arbitrage, and I'm just going to get in there. So um, it sounds like you're um, describing Eric Prince as basically a glorified accountant, whereas Wallenstein yeah. was the full deal. He is a freaking parvenu. Get him out of here. The uh, Wallenstein um, biggest Chad of the Thirty Years' War, or is that Gustav Adolphus? It's got to be Gustavus because Wallenstein. He's got he's got the obsession with astrology. He's got the fact that he gets uh, killed like in his bedroom. Some Irishman runs him through with a halberd. Ooh, not an Irishman. Uh, yeah, I know. Just ooh, embarrassing. <laughs> insult to injury. Whereas, you know, Gustavus Adolphus dies in the saddle in battle, you know, at the height of his power. So there's certainly more of a, uh, the, 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 the narrative is more satisfyingly chattish for Gustavus Adolphus. And so far we've kind of described um, what the war looked like uh, in terms of what was happening on the ground, you have, uh, and when we talk about like living off of the land or the billeting, it's not just bullying Saxon burgers out of their wife's uh, jewelry, but uh, what happens to the villages? What happens to the countryside when there's a need to bring in uh, enough to feed your roving music festivals worth of um, soldiers and camp followers? Uh, yeah, they're just wiped out I mean, in, in total. You, you see a process where in some towns, if there's well-organized local government and there's uh, the ability to negotiate, maybe bribe somebody, you can just get away with your stuff getting taken, you know, maybe uh, ransom you, yourself. You still keep your town. But, you know, if you're if you uh, can't mount a defense or, or a negotiation and you, they're hungry enough, they'll just take everything and burn the rest down if you resist. And, uh, what a lot of German villagers ended up doing cyclically was uh, running into the forest and living uh, and hiding out there uh, when they had any, when there was any inkling of an approaching army. Uh, and then Regardless of which side. Yeah. And they would, and they would live in the woods for weeks on a time. And there's harrowing narratives of times when the, the, so they run into the woods, the soldiers come to the, to the village. There's nothing there. It's already been picked clean. So then they go into the woods and they find them in the woods and then they just take everything, start killing people and, and uh, doing sexual assaults. It's horrifying. And that's the cycle that uh, occurs everywhere that armies sit, anywhere they're sent uh, throughout Germany in this swath. Uh, it really was the Southwest that got it the hardest, but up through Saxony too, it's just this horrifying dispolation that leads to mil millions of deaths. And millions of deaths, what's the proportion um, um, if you were to quantify it? I forgot what it was. I think it's it's something like 7% of Germany's population at the time. The um, And with it's this... Such a, 
it's such a huge conflict. It's it is quite it's it really is quite baffling how it has, doesn't have a uh, bigger imprint in the public psyche. People know about the Crusades, for example, uh, you know, which is ages ago. Why not this conflict? It's just it's making me wonder. Maybe it just needs a good movie. But, I mean, uh, it definitely could use a good movie. There's there are very few movies about the Thirty Years' War. Is it oh, Mother, the Michael Mother Caine? Co- Mother Courage. Michael Caine movie. Yes, the last uh, the last Valley with Michael Caine and Omar Sharif, to, written and directed by James Clavell, is the only one uh, that I think was ever made in a, a studio. Uh, there's a couple of the, uh, good movies that take place during the time period, like and c- contain some of the same stuff, like The Witches, the Ken Russell movie. That's about a, a witch burning in a uh, in a Huguenot town during the Thirty Years' War, but yeah, very few depictions of it in the popular culture. Also, it happened in Germany, and the Germans don't like to really you know, talk insist about. upon themselves too much historically because you know they don't want they don't want people bringing up old shit. Kind of but worms. I do think that in Germany there is a deep cultural memory of the Thirty Years' War. At least there was until relatively recently. I mean, I know that like in in public. Uh, 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 polls and they say well, like what's the most you know the tr- most traumatic or the or the most uh, uh, tragic event in German history? I think more of them say the Thirty Years' War than World War Two, but it just I think it never broke containment of that culturally to anywhere else. And apart from the the death and destruction caused directly by um, armies, there's also disease and starvation. Yes. And, yeah. All the all the, the horsemen are galloping everywhere. And so, who wins? Like, what's the awesome victory? Um, you know, why well, isn't there gets, a parade? It, is, at the end? It, it, it fights itself to an exhausted stalemate uh, because the twenty percent of the European population is that what you're, is that what you found? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I knew it was a lot. Yeah, the sixty percent uh, in the, the in, south yeah, German some of the lands. German lands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where's that? I'm sorry, I got distracted. Oh, um, the oh, uh, mm-hmm. all the all the horsemen and what's the effects on the the psyche of Europe and what's the outcome? Oh right, after who won? All of this who won? Yeah, yeah, who won? Uh, I mean. Th- the capitalists won. The the burgers, the urban the urban populations of the cities won. You know, I mean, you could say that uh, France won the uh, this battle between the states for hegemony on the continent. That like the war sees the final eclipse of Spain and the Habsburgs and the rise of the, the French uh, Bourbons. Like that that is the the geostrategic winner. Uh, but you know, in terms of who got the most out of it for the least cost, it's definitely the cities, because uh, the the fighting the wars ends up weakening a lot of these dynasties in the long run. Uh, the loser definitely uh, the institution of the Holy Roman Empire. It persists until Napoleon, but as this shell, uh, because the powers within it have been fully vitiated by the, co- the course of the war and the rise of these new state systems these secularized states that are not going to be fighting as part of a religious uh, uh, alliance, you know, dedicated to a confession, but rather to narrower 
state interests, the interests of the economy, which increasingly become the interests of the bourgeois. And that move away from transnational religious identities towards uh, the nation state model, uh, that gets, to, to what extent does the peace of Westphalia, which again is one of the big uh, agreements that brings an end to hostilities, uh, that's seen as this watershed in the establishment of state sovereignty and the modern state system. Um, is that, that doesn't sound like anybody's preferred outcome. Um, is that? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was what they had to, what they had to accept uh, because they had fought for so long that they had exhausted any hope of getting their maximalist uh, agenda through. What, what was the maximalist agenda of the two states? Well, uh, what the, the, it was started by the Frederick the Elector of the Palatinate, who I do, do believe had a long-term goal of overthrowing the Habsburgs and replacing them as the uh, preeminent uh, dynasty in the Holy Roman Empire, and then uh, continuing the Protestantization of it. Uh, and they did not get that. Uh, the Habsburgs maintained their control of their, uh, the, of the, the Holy Roman Empire forever. They kept it for the rest of its existence. Uh, and Catholic and Protestantism didn't really extend any further than where it had by that point. It was it was stuck, so they didn't get what they want. But once once the uh, Bohemians and Frederick are defeated by Ferdinand, he has a vision of turning over turning back the Reformation, and, and rolling up these uh, upstarts who had overplayed their hand. And so he pursues that agenda for a while uh, until he dies, really, and then his son takes over Ferdinand III and looks around and says, "That uh, that ghost, that horse is dead. That can't happen because I've seen this whole thing unfold, and it, and, and it, it that no one can gain the definitive upper hand. It's just it's just draining the opponent until they uh, come to the negotiating table. And what brought everybody to the table is the fact that in, outside of Germany." where people were having to pay for this fucking war, not by having their crops expropriated, but through taxes, they said, fuck you, enough is enough. And you see uprisings in France and Spain kind of drive them to the negotiating table. And, uh, in, the, and in the end, it, it, it basically, the result of this war is, is the confirmation of your kind of your thesis about, you know, Europe having these competing states as being key to the story of, you know, the formation of capitalism, uh, that is basically formalized in the aftermath of uh, uh, of the Thirty Years' Wars, which creates the basis not only of a new European system of, uh, of uh, quote-unquote international relations, but provides the basis for what in the 19th century becomes a like fundamentally global system of state structures around the world based on this kind of mutual this recognition perhaps that like there can be no universal monarch so we right. have to we have to uh accept each other's sort of um limited sovereignty right i mean yeah like it's sometimes people think of the previous piece of westphalia as this uh thing that creates this structure you know and that's not really what happens the, the piece of westphalia is a recognition of a change that had already occurred and it had come through the fighting of the Thirty Years' War and the recognition that, oh, there can be no central authority anymore. 
We cannot dominate from the middle and there can be no religious uniformity either. And so if those facts are assumed, well then what are we going to now? We've already done it. We've already made these states capable of doing this, but now we're going to consecrate this new state with a new formal legal order that, that the Westphalia piece begins the process of, of creation. Of. And we, we touched on this before, but you pick the 30 years war because of things like uh, declining hegemon with uh, discredited ideology attempting to reassert itself um, as the dominant hegemonic force in Europe, the little ice age and the climate pressures that come with it, the uh, exhaustion of a mode of production. How is this like now? Is Biden um, Maximilian or one of the one of the Ferdinands? Uh, I mean, I think, it, 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 you know, they're always those comparisons are always facile, but I think there is something to gain from looking at the United States through the lens of an exhausted hegemon and, and a hegemon that has uh, brought into being a new social world and a new economic order. Uh, but that which now it is no longer capable of directing because it kind of changed from out from underneath it. And I think that's true of the Holy Roman Empire overseeing the restive commercial cities of northern Germany. Uh, and it's also true of the United States at this point. Uh, just this this desperate grasp to hold on to the center of a global capitalism that wants to decentralize and deterritorialize, which is it's it's all it's uh, ever driving function and, and imperative is to pull away from a center. Centers exist to nourish transition, but then once they have fulfilled their goal, they're supposed to go away. But of course, they always fight to keep what they have. Uh, so yeah, I think we're we're a little Habsburgy, certainly. Our, our institutions are as incapable of direct, of uh, addressing crisis as theirs were, that's for sure. And the way that you describe these um, these sort of war camps living off of the land and bleeding a region dry. Can we create an analogy with the way that um, privatization of state services and neoliberalism turns um, American workers, poor, poor Americans into profit centers and as a way of sort of draining the blood of a region in order to feed their, uh, I mean, it's not Wallenstein, it's um, right, like the, the Walton family. Walmart Stein. There you go. The, uh, do you think that um, it, it might be a similar type of, uh, because one other, um, one of the development you flag is uh, too many fail sons. Oh yeah, those, those overproduced elites, always a problem. And uh, is what we're seeing in the U.S. also an issue of overproduced elites and everybody trying to find a way to secure their uh, their sinecure, their um, you know, like yep. John D's prebendal post, um, where you're collecting taxes from the peasants. In this case, it would be um, getting your uh, you know shaking down Medicaid or uh, Rick Scott. Nothing, style. nothing wrong with a bit of tax farming. It's a age-old practice. <laughs> Yeah, no, rent-seeking is the only thing left. And so you have all these unproductive elites who have the social capacity to rent-seek and so do, 
And they do that instead of creating uh, alternatives to, to developing the solutions to a crisis that can be addressed, that we have the technology to address, but which our political system cannot. Uh, and so, yeah, we're just going to cre create the very people who should be building a future are put to the task of just hastening the destruction of what exists. Yeah. But of I course, mean... the, the but there is through their frenzied, frenzied action, something else is being built underneath our feet. That's the other thing that this moment has in common with that is that we or... don't know what is being made now, but it will uh, supersede whatever exists currently. And it will solve to some one degree or another the crisis that we have. And of course, create new zones of contradiction that can be worked through. To what extent is that already taking place in Asia and especially China, where you have um, you the elites there build um, you know maglev trains, they invest in technology, um, and there it feels like the productive base, the material foundation of their economy is developing as opposed to this uh, competitive rent seeking that we're seeing in uh, especially the US, but also in the UK and uh, in parallel with some real development elsewhere in the West. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's there's a long tradition now of uh, looking at capitalism and then the begin the great divergence and all these questions and and saying this is what we're seeing is actually not it's actually a, just the opening stage of a process yeah okay the the, the europeans you know opened the, the the jar you know they they loosened the pickle jar or whatever but their uh their rise to preeminence is is just the precondition for the eventual uh domination of global uh, economy by china uh, and that, that they just had a little bit of a head start thanks to some lucky coal deposits in, in uh, the UK, and they were able to, to jumpstart this process. But at the end, China is going to be the one to uh, dictate the future. And I think that that's, I mean, just as a, as a question of numbers, it, it seems to me unarguable. Like they got a billion and a half people for crying out loud. You know, that's, that's just such a... Uh, Social, a lot of people storehouse of social value that they have institutions capable of directing oh my god can you believe it can you imagine and, and that's the difference between china and the other behemoth uh, right. india yes because uh, exactly, you got the one that pushed through the contradictions of building capitalism because they had the the communist party take power in their post-colonial struggle and then you have india which pulled away and back towards the feudal relationships because they were dominated by the bourgeois and landlords and that they had Gandhi instead of Mao. And to, to and Gandhi, Gandhi is really, and I've said this before, basically Pol Pot, but peaceful. I mean, yeah. he, he's Pol Pot, but peaceful. Pol Martin Pot. Luther, Pol Pot. Back, not moving through modernity, but, but yeah. pulling away from it. Yeah. And, uh, but um, I, I point out that in India, what you end up with is not a senescent, a feudal state, but actually the coexistence of everything at once. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it can't redominate, but everything that it's all happening simultaneously. Combined, there can be no combined uh, uneven development. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a feudal countryside. There's also extractive industries. There's also high capitals. They got the call also, centers. They got everything. They yeah. got the call scammers. There, uh, there's, like, there's a whole genre of uh, YouTube videos about people who like 
reverse scam scammers and all the scammers come from some impoverished province in india and they're just trying to skeeve like eight bucks so they get medicine for their moms or whatever it's uh it's pretty sad when you uh, when you watch it but yeah like china well i mean you see this this you see this when you do like like comparisons don't compare cuba to the united states compare it to haiti right right where would you rather be haiti with its uh you know or or, or cuba probably cuba would be uh doing better anyway we are coming up at an hour and 50 minutes so we don't want to keep matt too long but cuba would you like to uh finish us out with the last question of the day where's your neck ruffle i actually have it <laughs> i don't know if it's in this room though but i have one i got a neck ruffle for our live show and they're nice i honestly uh I was surprised by how comfortable it was because in the pictures it always looks like it's really starchy pain in the neck, literally. Yeah, starchy. Ah, the, um, this one's like silken, so it's nice. Ooh, Man, fancy I gotta boy. say that was. I think that is that period is the apogee of men's fashion. That's. I think that is when men, uh, when they could still strut and, and front before male fashion got drained towards utility. You've been looking at old lance uh, lance neck pictures. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. Those guys. Those guys because knew how to is, dress. It gets a little too dandy after that, you know, like the 1700s with the with the the powdered wigs. Powdered wigs, yeah, where you end up looking like a a, a, a Eurythmics music video. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> or like Poison, um, the uh, the hair metal band. But uh, the uniforms actually are good throughout uh, up to World War One, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Oh, um, and some of the units suave. anyone anyway any day i can't remember which unit it was but there was a, a french cavalry um regiment that part of the uniform was a leopard skin with the head of the leopard yes. on the shoulder that's how you do yeah, it that's the french well, cavalry you should uh my some of my favorite uniforms from that period are of course the reformed uh iranian kaja line infantry from the early 20th century because they have the best hats. They have like nice fancy French uniforms, but baggy trousers like a zouave, and then a tall lambskin hat. And you can't really, you can't really beat that for a good dress uniform. I gotta give it, they, I gotta give it, but give it to them. The, the accursed Anglo's really were, uh, uh, they snapped when they had that red jacket. To make they sure, yeah, when you get shocked. Yeah. You won't see the blood. Yeah, yeah. Keep like that the, stiff the, upper lip. The white, the white helmet and the the red jacket. That's some imperial ass stormtrooper shit. They really, they snapped on that one. Yeah, just ask the South Africans, right? Like ah. um, the um, and I, I don't know. Uh, do you have time for a couple more questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the in terms of um, thinking about how the states begin this period and come out of this period um the because you're not at the stage of the french revolution yet you don't have the full rationalization you don't have napoleon you don't have the levee en masse but you do have um a great deal more rationalization at the end than you do at the beginning um what happens to these ideas of feudal leadership of kingliness um attached to the the, the sacredness of the Holy Roman Empire. What does it mean to try to be the most Catholic monarch or um, 
and what what breaks in that ideological structure um, emerge by the end? Well, the real big fracture happens in England, which avoided the majority of the war. Um, it they uh, James the first, who was the uncle of the Elector Palatine uh, in law, or I'm sorry, the father in law of, of the Elector Palatine, uh, was assumed by them that he was going to support fully his attempt to take the Bohemian crown. And instead, he did not. He allowed them to raise regiments in England, uh, but they did not. And they gave him some money but, and some diplomatic uh, cover, but they did not go in with both feet the way that they would have wanted. Uh, and actually, uh, there's a strain of historiography that blames uh, the uh, emerging crisis there for that decision. If, if, if James had gone all in on the Continental War, he would have avoided the crisis burning at the heart of the Stuart state, which really comes into four with his son, James II, Charles II. Uh, and as the civil, as the Thirty Years' War is heading towards its like most violent phase in England, there's a huge conflict that emerges over questions of religion uh, in in its in its composite monarchy in Scotland and Ireland. The imposition of a central Anglican uh, liturgy causes a conflict. Calvinists, Catholics, they all rebel against it. Uh, and the Calvinists who are now closer and closer to the heart of parliamentary power and rising bourgeois power array against the king, who they see as a, a remnant of the, of the Catholic world, the tyranny of this uh, dead state hand that is not the thing that sustains my belief in God, which is what the Catholic world saw it as, but rather as this this foreign force that constrains my ability to find God through my own actions. Uh, and so they cut his head off, which is astounding that that happened. And right after the Westphalian peace is signed, James Charles I's head gets cut off. And that is the, the first time uh, that it, a popular assemblage uh, kills a monarch and like breaks that spell temporarily anyway. Uh, and when they bring it back, when they bring back the monarchy after they can't square the circle during the Commonwealth period, because they don't have, they have not yet built the institutions yet they can do that. They have to bring in this, they essentially have job interviews, a series of uh, job interviews to find a monarch who has accommodated himself to a reduced conception of kingship. Uh, and so that is what is the legacy, really, of this whole period is we have this new sort of leadership that enthrones the bourgeois and desacralizes the public space. And that's represented in the decline of kingliness. And of course, in Catholic powers, they try to push against that. And there's a counter reformation and, and there's an, a deepening attempt to apply uh, a, a uh, religious awe to the office. But as conditions change, that becomes very brittle. And it starts breaking down. And eventually, even in the real heart of feudalism, France, uh, that resisted this as much as it could, uh, the king gets his head cut off, too. So the, there's debate among the leftist historians about the extent to which the English, Revo uh, the English Revolution was even a revolution. Right. Um, the, and it sounds like you, you do see that it did play a revolutionary oh, it's role. Oh, it's absolutely, I don't, it's like, oh, they got a king again. They got a completely different conception of kingdom. 
they they, they traded they traded a steward who was the 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 family of, of, of traditional rule in Ireland or in Scotland and recently the kings of England they traded a steward who was connected to that lineage of power concentrated in that office for a Dutch stadtholder who'd spent his entire life in committee meetings with the board Good King of, Billy. Uh, of, yeah. Uh, yeah, of uh, Good. of Amsterdam bankers. Counting there is a graphs. there is a there is a statue of King Good King Billy in Hull as Hull was a center of the reformation and slammed the city door in the face of King Charles during his uh, escapades we we were very proud to have the Stuarts finally kicked out for their papery and uh, good King Billy coming in to town with his multi-ethnic army. I think I, I think I remember that people uh, were terrified of Swedes because they heard they were giant people who lived in a, a land. Giant people who lived in a land where it was never it, there was no sunshine. The only the white toes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the um, so follow up, like if. Richard Cromwell were less of a fail son. Could the English Revolution have gone even further? Uh, I don't think so. I think that the the people, the the forces that at that by that point had 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 taken control of the British political economy were fully in 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 there. Uh, There was going to have to be a king of some kind. And honestly, I think that it speaks to Oliver Cromwell's vanity that he didn't just accept the reality and. take the crown but he was too he was too proud he was too convinced of his own righteousness to do what could have contained the, the kept the Cromwells on the throne but if the Cromwells stay on the throne it's really it, it it I think it coalesces around the same point of like those those Wilhelmine uh the Wilhelmine res- restoration and then uh a glorious revolution rather and then and then the Georges coming in and playing the role that they played to the British Parliament and to the forces that control British Parliament. I mean, it, it's really, uh, it's really a story of the kind of shift, as you said, in the image of the king as being this div- semi-divine figure, gradually over a long period of time, to uh, the modern iteration of monarchy, where it's like the first amongst uh, the first citizen, or a like celebrity, a celebrity, a celebrity, into, exactly. Into, they're just a celebrity. They're just and, a famous person. Yeah, they go from like semi-guard to bank manager yep. to, to celebrity. So yeah. it's like a, a transformation over time because, you know, what's Charles's big set, uh, Charles III's big selling point is that he's very interested in the environment. He makes biscuits, if you like biscuits, the he organic. Biscuits. He's he basically an influencer mom on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, that's what the royals are. I don't know why people are mad at poor old Harry, you know, like he's just... He's just yeah, taking, he's doing the job. He just, he's doing the job. What he's the doing real is job. what the job takes now, which they always thought, yeah, the job is you show up and you set, you you wave at them, and that's it. You don't let them in at all. You let there be a mystery. But that's not going to play anymore. That's boring. There needs to be juice. You need to – the only you thing need drama. Is, is, you need yeah, drama. Yeah, drama. There, and, and the only place left to go is inward, so that means you got to open the door. And it's he, kind of a weird – tra- yeah. He's weird, doing what he needs to do to keep him relevant. 300, 400 years ago, 
Harry would have gotten it, gone to Scotland, got an army, and come and murdered his brother. Yeah, but but as now, God intended. As yep. God intended, but now for God's, he all he can do is like moan at him yep, on that's social it. media. He would have come in, executed his father, executed his brother, yep. married Kate Middleton, and, <laughs> and taken. Yeah, he, he he would have converted the realm to Islam so he could keep both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I you, mean, or Mormonism. Or yeah, Mormon. yeah. The um, I have one more question, but I also feel like that would be a good point to end if um, if you need to go. Yeah, no, give me one more. Okay, the um, we talked about credit and debt is a major preoccupation in both the sort of political economic circles of the uh, online left. Um, I'm thinking of Graeber's book, but also just a, the very deep field of uh, financial political economy. Uh, it's also a preoccupation in the American right and the whole uh, issue of, of having too much debt, inflation, uh, the debasement of the currency, Rand Paul stuff. Um, what was the situation like in 30 years war America, the Habsburg Empire? They had gotten their hands on all of this uh, Aztec and Inca gold, but what happened to it? Um, where did it end up? Uh, it ended up mostly in the hands of the local uh, arist aristocracy that had been allowed to be created because again, they're the precocious hegemon. They, they, they bumble into this, this resource that gives them a, a incomparable advantage over the other powers of Europe in the form of these colonies. But because they're just another feudal dickhead kingdom slapping around and they just happen to find this stuff, they don't have the capacity to, through, as a state, go and take it and, and, and to exploit it. All they can do is give people the permission to go there, subdue land, and then live on it as lords, which means they're in charge of the production process and they decide what goes home. So the, uh, they get to keep a lot of it. A big chunk of it went to China to pay for the spices and the silks and all the luxury goods that 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 the uh, that power depended on and, and was justified by. So a, a trickle of it um, made its way to Spain uh, and mostly went directly to the coffers of the state's creditors uh, who extended huge lines of credit against the output of the Spanish mines. So by the time of the Thirty Years' War, a lot of that gold isn't even touching uh, uh, Spain. And it has this effect that that is endemic of hegemonies, whereas while creating this machine of power and, and domination, the, the center of it is being hollowed out and collapsing. Uh, the, 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 the gilded cities of Spain do no development. No, none, of these, none of these feudal lords are investing any of this gold. They're just painting another, uh, you know, they're building another uh, uh, statue of themselves. And the, and, the, and the gold and the gold and the gold and the gold and silver in in China, of course, ends up being pilfered by British drug dealers. Yep. And, and then at <laughs> the end of that, and everybody also forgets at the end of the 19th century, they get mugged by the Japanese who extract yep. the rest of the silver to yep. fund their industrialization process in the early yep. 20th century. So you know, like a lot of the early adopters and benefiters of this gold ended up being destroyed by it yeah it's kind of like that's how it works it's like it's a curse it's the cur yeah. the curse of the spanish gold 
Yeah, truly. And uh, if and, there yes. were any gold that would be cursed, exactly. Right? It's it's <laughs> it's fucking haunted by the by the fucking peoples who were destroyed in order to extract. It. Yeah, the, you, the alien, you touch the it, ancient, you hear the yeah. Nawadal curses in your head. Yeah. No, it's the ancient aliens that are coming to get you. I mean, mm. like I saw that Indiana Jones movie. The Crystal Skulls, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Crystal Skulls will come and get you for it. But yeah, well, you know. Well, Matt, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us. Indeed. This was a fascinating was really discussion. Um, you know, hope we can have you back some down, uh, sometime down the line. Perhaps we can talk some alternative history. Oh, baby. Anytime. <laughs> I love that. Are, you, are you a Harry Turtledove fan? Oh, my God. Although I only re I never read any of the alien crap. I never oh, read that. any of the magic stuff. I only read the ones about if the Confederacy won the Civil yeah. War. What would and happen? And it goes through the early 20th century, and it's like, what if World War One happened with the U.S. and CSA being parts of the European alliance system, and there's the Western Front in Virginia, and then what if a defeated Confederacy becomes like Nazi Germany? Jake Featherston the third. There's just yep. The Freedom Party. The and Freedom Party. And Pittsburgh becomes Stalingrad. That's the shit. I yeah, loved it. I've if, read the I've read the I read the alien one. I got it in an airport when I was like 14 on the way to Spain. And I read it in the hotel room and I was traumatized by how bad Harry Turtledove writes sex scenes. Oh my god. Harry Dove sex like scenes fun. are brutal. No. And there's a lot of basically the aliens have a breeding program oh, where God. an American GI has to is forced by aliens to breed with a, uh, a Chinese peasant woman. Oh, That's for real. Yeah, there oh, you go. All right, I'm, I'm, I've got um, my hot take on this is if the CSA had won the war, you'd have an American pope, and it would be Brother Rodrier. <laughs> Yeah, Mormonism could have become like a, a grounded, like a uh, a actual power. Like it's the, the papal, papal states, like in Missouri or something. It's the purest American version of Christianity. It, it is. is. It's the it only is. American one because it's the only one that America is featured in. That's the thing. If like America is like the narcissistic nation where narcissism mm -hmm. is enshrined as God, as as uh, holy. How the hell are you going to have a religious tradition where some guy shows up in the middle of a desert that you've never been to and fucking does a bunch of stuff and it has nothing to do with anything American? Get the hell out of here. That, exactly. Right? Joseph Smith saw the niche in the market. Analogies are for betas. We're the protagonist here, motherfucker. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, basically, Mormon is to Chris, uh, Christianity but, uh, what the Alien versus Predator movies are to the Alien universe. It's yeah. kind of there's the alien in it, but there's also the predator. Yep. And You're making it intrinsically it. better. Adam and Eve was in Missouri. That's right. That's I'm in where Missouri. the Garden of Eden was. I'm in Missouri, and I can tell you it is a beautiful Garden of Eden here in southwest Missouri, full of the friendly, fentanyl grows on trees. Full of friend friendly people. Uh, when I first moved here, I learned very quickly if you go to Kmart, which is now shut down. Uh, people with teeth are not on meth, and people without teeth are generally on meth. Apparently, it wreaks havoc with your dental care in combination with uh, America's appalling public health system. It's a recipe sugary for sugary drinks, too. Sugary drinks. Oh. Meth mouth. I remember I had, I had a uh, friend, you know, uh, I mean, I think you know, you knew M Michael Brooks, right? Yes. So, Michael 
came to visit me here in, in Missouri, and we drove from Kansas City to to Springfield. We stopped on the way, and he asked in a Midwest uh, in a, a Midwest petrol station in the middle of Missouri whether they had a uh, uh, an organic ginger beer for him to drink. <laughs> and I was like, "You've been in New New York too long, buddy. You get Mountain Dew. They have twelve colors, <laughs> so." Pick one. Oh, we have so many Mountain Dews. So many. Code, code red, midnight, black. I, re I really it's think of them more. I really think of them more as Mountain Don'ts. Nice. You can't know it. There's some substance in American Mountain Dew, which means it's illegal to sell in Britain. So they probably have probably fentanyl. Who knows what it is? But it's they have it's a British eye of some kind. They have a British version of it, which is not the same. It's like the British Fruit Loops. Like when I first had American Fruit Loops, I thought I was about to die because I went to the bathroom and it was all brightly colored after I'd been there. I was like, what is going on here? And then it took, I was like, oh, I had these food colorings, which apparently color your stool. Anyway. <laughs> on that note. On, on, that, on that, extent, uh, that exciting note. Thank you so much, and perhaps we'll discuss uh, Harry Turtledove. Oh my God, would love to do that. I've read all those books too. I did Hell not yes. like. I didn't like the final uh, no, the way they yeah. did the, the Second World War. Total rubbish. But I, 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 it still grinds my gears that they had the Confederacy getting the bomb first. In no universe do those hillbillies yeah. have the brain power to get the bomb before the United States would have. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, that's just insane. But he it's had to like... make up some cracker uh, scientist who is not a real guy to be yeah. the guy who figured yeah, yeah. out his... He had to conjure a fake uh, uh, Confederate a physicist. Yeah, was was... Shit. Did he get his start, like, uh, building stills in the holler? Right? <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> In this universe, the, 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 the German Empire does not go anti-Semitic. Einstein lives in fucking Germany. Why don't the Germans get it? They exactly. would get the nuke first before some fucking crackers. And yeah, in fact, they might have fusion power. By, um, by now. Yeah, no, there's some there's a lot of there's a lot of popular alternative histories that I have a lot of issues with. There's another one called Kaiserreich, which seems really good, but like that's the whole, game, the video game, right? Yeah, they did a video, there's, but they have a guy who makes documentaries on it, and uh, they're on YouTube. It's called, and and he gets people pay him like hundreds, like hundreds of thousands. So to like make, do like to make fake, a little talk about like a fake version of ooh, I might exactly. have that out. I might I have, have some that out. <laughs> I have some unpopular alternative histories from obscure Polish writers that I would love to introduce. Awesome, like what if the deluge? <laughs> What if the deluge doesn't happen? What if you stayed in Moscow? Uh, one of them is um, about the what if the Jew, uh, what if European Jews, especially uh, Ashkenazi in um, Eastern Europe, uh, converted on mass to Catholicism? <laughs> that's just like that's just like fan fiction for Catholics. Yeah, that's right? just like. The, yeah, fantasy. Well, it was written by a Polish uh, secular Jew, and um, his pivot was interesting. Um, the Jewish people, the Jewish converts, have uh, become extremely successful within the church because, of course, right? Like, it's an intellectual profession, um, and once they've proven their Jesus-y bona fides, then, right, like, you get, um, get post-Jewish, you know, Jewish convert popes. 
Um, and the anti-Semitism of certain Westerners is so deeply rooted that they actually, led by uh, Henry Ford, uh, convert to Judaism to spite the Catholic Jews. Well, that's well, that's pretty exciting uh, because uh, uh, you like all it. the you like all it. the all British all British uh, alternative fiction is just like what if the Nazis won yep. the Second yeah. World War, and it's all just a deep down reflection of how the British middle classes desperately want to be like S and M dominated by Nazis. Yeah. That's like something deep in the. They're, they crave that boot. They're like, oh God, we came so close. So close to the boot, we could have been, yeah. we could have been ruled from Senate House in the middle of London, yeah. and we could have licked German Kaiserbuch. I mean, like they always find these like British upper class guys end up hiring the German dom dominatrix to mm. spank them silly. And yeah. The American version of that, right? The the series of the men, uh, the High Castle. Is, oh, yeah. the ex is the exact opposite, right? There, the whole um, idea, granted, there's this whole West Coast where the French resistance fighting the Japanese thing, but um, the main character is an American Nazi, and basically the, the sort of secret subtext is like, it's kind of awesome. The uniforms. <laughs> the uniforms. Yeah, well, people do like to, hu people do like the Hugo Boss aesthetic, right? You know, it's... Uh, mm -hmm. He's not yeah. Hugo employee. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that, I will be, I have to go because I have to go to a, a parent teacher meeting to learn about how my son likes to, likes to street fight with people. Yeah. And his, leads... name is, his name is Zal, which is a great 30 years war. Warlord oh yeah. Name. It's a good warlord name. That's, why we picked it zal does sound like a, a it's very easy kneel for, before zal oh yeah before i mean when when we get to that uh you know post apocalyptic future where we have like the mad max style world he's gonna have he's gonna have the name he's gonna have the name to lead a biker gang throughout the midwest that terrorizes people because that's the best you can do for your kids these days absolutely and with that happy point we are out. out.